We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. It's a three-hour-old game. Yeah, but that's the great thing about this particular season. It just won't end. One more strike is all Shaw needs. There it is. Sox win. After making it look bad on a slider, Brian went to the fastball and left Isbell standing there. So the Sox salvage the finale of the series. Yay! And there was much rejoicing because the season was over. And we didn't have them to kick around anymore. But now we do. Now we can take a breather. And now we can talk about what happens from here. Dan Bernstein, Lawrence Holmes. And if you go to twitch.tv slash Chicago 670 the score, you'll see a lot of things. You will see in studio here Josh Nelson of Sox Machine. And then joining us remotely, his partner with Sox Machine, Jim Margulis. And our longtime friend and White Sox expert, James Fegan. Yeah. And there's, the other thing that you need to see is what Josh brought in. <laughs> PowerPoint presentation, presentation, prepared slide deck. <laughs> like, no BS. He walked in and slapped <laughs> these PowerPoints on the desk so they... Look at this work that he has put into this thing. Rankings by this is ridiculous. By war at every position and and by other stats at every single position for free agency. I wonder if the He's White out- Sox have done this type of. Work. I sure hope so. Do not do not scare me, Lawrence. I don't need I don't need that fear. I do not need the fear that nobody at Thirty Fifth and Shields has done three four hours of work at making. A 50-grade PowerPoint in what this offseason ex- could be. I, I didn't expect I was coming to a board meeting. <laughs> you always make fun of me because I always like a, uh, a page in notes, so I'm prepared. So this if you great. ask me any questions, yep. I, I have the data in front of me. So I am ready for you guys. We got Jim Jam as well on the Zoom. Uh, so we're, we're covered. We got all the bases covered. Gentlemen, welcome. Thank you. Hello, James. Hello, Jim. I'm glad Josh prepared because I was I'm I'll be representing the shoot from the hip uh, delegation. Here. <laughs> All right, so why don't we start with this? When did you know and James I'm going to start with you. When did you know that things were irreparable for the 2023 season? 
Oh God. Um, I think when I got terminated, I thought that's what when uh, this. <laughs> um, I don't like. I uh, I was having this conversation with a, a player uh last month, and they were like, "Hey, remember what I told you in spring training, uh, in an interview that we had uh a lot of urgency coming to this year." I was like, yeah, sure. He's like, we never had any urgency, even in spring training. <laughs> oh my God. I was like, gee, thanks, man. I'm glad you're telling me this now. But um, So I guess the signs were there in terms of like, they never really actually looked sharp in spring training. I know they got framed like Pedro as like, um, you know, they, they, they want to see mistakes so they can correct them. Uh, you know, we, we want to see things because we'll address it, which has now become, you know, the thing we hear all the time now. But um. I mean, I'd say that series in Toronto in April, uh, you know, I, I think we probably covered some high points in the season, certainly late May, that series that they won in Cleveland. Uh, I think they got, they were probably under within five, six games or something like that. Whereas like you could start to see hope again, but um, the way they just kind of got waylaid uh, and the way that they had no ability to stop that losing streak. And there wasn't like, you know, either, the resilience in the clubhouse or really just the talent level or consistency pitching wise or the offensive approach to just stabilize or stanch you know any team could have a bad month or losing month or the way that they couldn't stop that and the way they were talking in toronto um about you know questioning the team's identity even at that point that was probably you know i i bet if i was in tampa for that series uh before the toronto one i might have said the tampa one but i, I would say toronto um as that losing streak went to eight or nine or 15 or wherever it was at that point was was uh that, that was uh sirens going off same question for you jim i think i had a little bit of the homer simpson following the pig mindset of like it's just a little dirty it's still good it's still good just a little wet it's still good it's still good uh but probably by the end of june uh and, or i guess part of the reason why i thought that is because the central was so weak no matter how bad the white Sox were they're always within like five six games so theoretically, like one week could turn around the season. Uh, the Twins kept them within range. And probably by the end of June, when they had that soft stretch that was supposed to make up for the schedule uh, that was so unforgiving in April, and they could barely do better than 500 at any given stretch. Uh, then when the schedule toughened up against in, in July after the break, it just looked like, well, that was the opportunity to make hay and they didn't. And sure enough, the half rolled around uh, week entrance into the all-star break. And then they got torn apart by the trade deadline afterwards. And then everything kind of crumbled. So I would say probably the end of June when they couldn't win a series against Oakland was when I more or less threw in the towel. Yeah. Hope was lost at the all-star break. We We talked about it during the season when the White Sox got there that, man, they're starting the second half in Atlanta. And shockingly, they won that series, but the writing was on the wall then. And then as a front office, you have to switch gears. And if you're going to start trading guys in which the White Sox did have a fire sale, it it takes a lot of time to be able to do that. So when it got to the all-star break and Minnesota started to play better baseball, that's when I would think, yeah, this season – is toast and then the trade deadline and all the flurry of moves happen. And then we knew that August and September were going to be brutal. And the crazy week that was in White Sox history uh, occurred, which was a lot of fun to cover. I don't know if it was a lot of fun for those working at 35th and Shields, but boy, everybody outside of 35th and Shields, it was very fun. And then now we have a new front office we got to analyze. So a lot of changes since then. But yeah, I think 
in the All-Star break, we knew that this season was toast. So they made those deals, ostensibly to make the most out of a lost season and to get closer to winning a championship. Now that the dust has settled and we know what they've gotten in those trades, we know the state of the roster, did it work? Was there any material improvement in the team with the moves that they made? I will say no at this moment because, boy, you could really use Jake Berger. Uh, <laughs> especially the way that Jake Berger hit with the Miami Marlins. Listen, for this upcoming offseason for the Chicago White Sox, the plan is very simple. You got to go from a 61 win team to, let's say, projected 86 win team. So you got to improve by the team by 25 wins. Here's the money ball math you got to aim for 775 runs scored, 729 runs allowed. So your offense needs to score 134 more runs this upcoming season than it did in 2023, and you have to allow 112 run fewer runs than you did. So that is a big swing as far as scoring more runs and allowing fewer runs. And you are coming into this offseason with the second-worst position group in Major League Baseball, and if you didn't have Luis Robert on your team, it would be the worst You have a bottom five pitching staff, and you have arguably the worst defense in Major League Baseball in which I can already hear James say, well, they didn't have the worst defense. They wouldn't be a bottom five pitching staff. And to his point, he is correct. But there's so much work to be done. In order for the 2024 White Sox, coming off a 101-loss season, to match in where they were in 2021, AL Central champions, a playoff team, they have to add 37 to 38 war to their current roster. Now, some of that is bounce back seasons from the veterans and the core that you built in order to contend in the first place, but that is also a lot of hope and prayer that guys bounce back, and that's also a lot of activity in free agency and trade that you have to add into this roster to improve upon it. So I don't know what the conversations are now with Chris Getz and Jerry Reinsdorf and what is reality, what's realistic in 2024 entering this offseason, But in the short term, if you're trying to make it to the playoffs in 2024 for the Chicago White Sox, it is going to be an arduous task, and there's a lot of work to be done. Jim, when it comes to 2024, do you believe the White Sox when initially they said that they were trying to be competitive in in the next window in which they can be competitive? I think Jerry Reinsdorf meant it. I'm not sure if Chris Getz meant it. And it was telling that, you know, Reinsdorf said, we need to go to Chris Getz. We can't go with an outside candidate because they'll need a year and we don't have a year to waste. And then Chris Getz kind of says the same thing during his introductory media conference. But then after about a few weeks in the job, he says like, well, I'm still doing a deep dive and I'm not, you know, we're still assessing what's going to be best balancing the short-term and long-term implications for this team in terms of how aggressive to push for it in 2024, which, you know, defeats the purpose a little bit of only going with Getz and not doing a search, but at least reflects, I think, some sanity on Getz's part by saying like, yeah, this is kind of a mess. Uh, It's going to need some untangling. Like the trades, I think, help the farm system build up some pitching because before Nick Nestrini uh, showed up and Kai Bush and Jake Eater are not off to strong starts, but at least they're, they're interesting. Like there was really nothing there. Once Sean Burke uh, was done for the season, Davis Martin underwent Tommy John surgery, like their pitching depth more or less evaporated. So they did do a decent job of restoring some depth there, even though they need some progress. And I I'm skeptical about trading with the angels, given how 
big of a mess the Angels seem to be and wondering like it's that, you know, if you're picking from them, that might not be good. But I think they made some small strides, but I think it's going to take more small strides. I just think the tough thing is that they they wasted their opportunity to do a rebuild and have the fans believe in a rebuild. So they can't say we're going to tear it down. We're going to lose another year on purpose because fans already did that, saw no reward. So if you really want them to just completely disappear, that's the way to do that. So I think they do have to try to avoid using that R word, but uh, they're really, you know, when you look at the amount of ground they have to make up and the lack of on-hand talent ready to take over at the major league level, there really seems to be no way around it. James, is, is any of what the White Sox at least, or what, to be specific, what Reinsdorf claimed that he wanted to do, is any of it possible next season? Like, Making the playoffs or being being what, what, a, what part being a competitive team and 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 being something where you know people are he he said that he didn't want to wait. Will White Sox fans have to wait? Um, they can certainly be better. Like, I don't think they can contend next season realistically, and I think even like shooting for the division would create bad priorities given where their talent base is. They could be like, they're getting like the least out of so many like areas, especially on offense. Like it's the worst approach team plate approach in baseball um, all around. You know, they, they, they swing at bad pitches. They put smalls on the ground. Like they're getting the least out of their offensive talent. I think like you could have a team where you're, you know, mostly taking short-term bets to flip at the deadline and really kind of trying to stock the system. Um and be a lot better if you're just getting more out of like your offensive core. Like if Andrew Vaughn like didn't have like a 50% ground ball rate or didn't uh, you know walk 10% of the time, or if he could say something similar about like Eloy Menes, your offense would look a lot more competitive and a lot more uh, viable on a regular basis, and you'd easily win you know 75 games and not look like the worst team in baseball all the time. Uh, without necessarily you're pushing all your chips in and pushing all your resources towards contending. Like they're getting so little out of everybody on offense because the approach is so bad that I think they could look like this drastically approved team uh, next year. If they simply were middle of the pack on so many of these like big indicators that show why they can't put together a prolonged streak of hot streak of a hot offense uh, that, that made them the team they're supposed to be the last two years. So I think if, if kind of structural things happened, uh, offensively, I don't know how, and I don't know how I expect such a big transformation overnight. But they're, they're they're so bad, they're so sloppy defensively, they're so bad in their offensive approach that if those things just were brought up to league median, they would all automatically they'd be like, we'd have a seventy-five win team, and people are like, well, you know, they're a year or two away instead of like they need to raise everything down to rebuild. Uh, so I, I think there's ways where they could raise the floor of what they're doing uh, on a structural level. Um, that wouldn't necessarily be like, well, we need to, uh, you know, sell our, our prospects for 30 year old uh, proven guys or, uh, you know, sign Shohei Otani to, to get better, um, which we know they won't do. Thoughts from each of you move on from a 31 year old Tim Anderson at this nadir of his career or reset and attempt to salvage. I, I think, ahead, sorry, I, I, I'm of the mind where like 
both make sense to a certain degree because in the certain uh, form that Anderson's in right now, like he doesn't do anything well. He doesn't, uh, he's not barreling the ball up well. He doesn't draw walks. He hasn't, he's never drawn walks. Like his defense is too scattershot to support his bat. So when you look at $14 million and trying to figure out like, what does he bring to the team in this current form? Like there's nothing reliable. On the other hand, the market for free agency is so barren in the middle infield. And you still want to like provide Colson Montgomery some time to prove that he's ready for the majors. So like, I don't know if you want to create a vacuum up top that you patch with like, you know, maybe Elvis Andres comes back. Although I wonder like, you know, whether he's tired of the White Sox experience by now. But it's just, it's really tough to uh, try to fill in that hole based on what's available. And I don't know if you really want to trade for anybody, given that you have Montgomery, you have Jose Rodriguez, you have some guys who might be able to handle the position internally if you're so far away and shortstop's not going to make the difference. So I think it depends on if that $14 million could be spent to better invest in a long-term solution elsewhere, then I think they should move on. I think the shame is that, I don't really feel anything about the decision. And I mentioned this on our, our mm. podcast on Monday is that like Tim Anderson, at the very least should make you feel something like he's designed to make you feel emotions when you watch him play. And right now I just got nothing. Yeah, I agree with Jim. This is the worst middle infield free agent market, maybe in the history of major league baseball, the best free agent right now, strict free agent, no contract options or mutual options as Elvis Andrews. He's the best. Uh, at second base, you'll have to wait to see what Toronto does with Whit Merrifield and what the Minnesota Twins do with Jorge Polanco. That can maybe help you out at second base, not necessarily at shortstop. But Tim Anderson, to bring him back for $14 million, to Jim's point, you're going to have to take that in consideration with the player payroll and the budget that you have going into next season when TV ratings have dropped by 41% and your TV contract expires at the 2024 season. You had a sharp decline in attendance when everybody else in major league baseball saw some type of increase in attendance. So there's some business things that are going on behind the scenes that will influence on how much money Chris gets will have to spend. I wonder James, if there is a Carlos Rodon situation here for the white Sox in which they can buy out Tim Anderson for a million dollars, wait to see in how the rest of major league baseball views Tim Anderson and come February 1st, if Tim Anderson is still a free agent, bring him back at a lesser deal than $14 million. Do you think that is a possibility? Um, I guess. Um, I, I think for Tim, like, it, you know, it's for one, I just, you distracted me. I don't see how the either of you have not already resigned yourself to Whit Merrifield uh, being on the White Sox. <laughs> Where are they? Here with, with Pedro Gomez. Uh, he's a proven winner and he brings an attitude. Narks. Narks. James, we've got Salvador Perez jerseys waiting in stock right now. We got minus 250 odds that Salvador Perez is going to be a Chicago White Sox catcher in 2024, man. So you know what? Let's bring it on. I love the idea, James. Whit Merrifield, Salvador Perez, bring on all the Royals because what an organization to duplicate is the Kansas City Royals. Angels and Royals. Um, I think it'd be beneficial for Tim to get out of a situation where there's the expectations to be the player he is, which come with batting leadoff every day, even while he's going through like the worst season of his life and, and searching for his swing. Um, I think he is a player who lower half injuries in high school pushed him towards baseball. And now you're seeing an accumulation of them over the years. Uh, that's kind of, you know, making it hard to escape and, and, and kind of predicting future problems. 
I think he was never going to like he's a player whose approach was kind of tilted around utilizing his elite athleticism. I didn't think he was, you know, his plus age 30 years were necessarily ever going to be the most graceful uh, uh, process. So I, I think there's like a litany of reasons why I'm not super hopeful about a bounce back and think maybe an environment where one, he has to prove himself, but also he's not going to be like constantly waiting to flash back to the center of the franchise type of player all the time would be good for him and just to get out of like kind of the rut of these last couple of years. Uh, so I, I, I think letting him go makes a lot of sense. I, but I, I get to the point of like, it's, uh, as you said, there's a vac. You, if you let him go, you're basically looking for a one year stopgap bounce back candidate uh, at shortstop before Colson Montgomery is, is, or, you know, some other candidate is ready. And, you know, who, who would be the better bounce back candidate than necessarily Tim Anderson? At least he's done it before. Um, at least he'd actually be interested in being here um, more than others. And uh, yeah, I, I, I don't, it's, it's not a, a fun situation. I do feel something since I just, you know, I, I've covered the dude and I, I've known how much he's been talking. He came into this year talking so many things about trying to alter his approach and, you know, add plate discipline and, and, and doing things to try to adjust to what was coming for him in his game. And then to see him still get waylaid, it'd be nice to see him uh, be able to stanch the bleeding at some point and, and find some sort of, uh, you know, second act to his career because, you know, he kind of wowed everybody with the way he was able to reinvent himself to, to become the player he was for a few years there. If he were able to kind of surprise us all again, you know, that'd be very fitting for him. But uh, the indicators, the, all, all, the, all the lights on the dashboard are flashing red right now. So I, I understand why you don't see a bounce back there. Well, we'll all feel better after we take a breath and a break and then talk, no, we won't. And then talk about <laughs> White Sox pitching. That's because we, we haven't mentioned the, the, what about the pitching? Well, we'll address that next. It's our White Sox roundtable with the Sox machine crew and James Fegan and Bernstein and Holmes on the score. Is managing accounts payable taking up too much of your time? With Avid Exchange, your AP is automated so you can easily review and approve invoices anytime, anywhere, giving you more control and visibility into your workflow. Experience the power of change. Avid Exchange. Learn more at avidexchange.com. You're listening to Bernstein and Holmes, Midday's Tinted 2 on Sports Radio 670 The Score. In Odyssey Station, Odyssey Station, Odyssey Station. It's a little early to, to comment on what the rotation is going to look like. We, we know the players to, to expect back here, and we know the, the pitchers that are in our system. But we've got some work to do. You know, we've got staff in town. You know, the last couple of days we'll continue to, to, to meet throughout this week. And we've got some time before free agency opens up, along with the ability to acquire some, some other arms. But, yeah, we've, I, that's certainly an area that's, that needs to be addressed. And, you know, we like some of the arms we have. And we like a lot of the arms that are coming through our system. And we'll learn more of what we need to do here in the coming weeks to set us up for the offseason. Oh, but you might be. Yeah, you're going to be immediately. Yeah, I think you are going to be because you're certainly trending in that direction. That's Chris Getz. And they have brought in a former Royal and Brian Bannister to help out with the pitching. I like Brian Bannister. I really do. Because he is, he was one of the very first active players to really embrace the new metrics of pitch shaping and, and movement and all the data. And those, so those guys were hard to find. They're not that hard to find anymore, but he's a smart dude. And by the way, son of Floyd, for those of us who are old yes. and remember the 83 team. But let me ask you this. Is Brian Bannister here 
to help these pitchers? Or is he here to ensure that they've got pitchers three, four, five years from now? I think the answer is yes, because he does have some projects here. His first project, I think, is helping get Dylan Cease and Michael Kopech back on track. And looking at just the walk rate. So the White Sox as a team pitching staff had the second worst walk rate in Major League Baseball. Who has the best walk rate in the regular season? The San Francisco Giants. So pounding the strike zone is very important when Brian Bannister was with the San Francisco Giants, and that's going to be a focus for the White Sox coming into this offseason for Kopech and Cease is to definitely shrink as much as they can their walk rate while also walk, uh, working with Tuki Tucson because, Jim, I know you've mentioned throughout the season, man, Tuki walks a lot of guys. And when you look at the free agent market, I think this is where you could be optimistic with Brian Bannister in tow and working with Ethan Katz. If you are looking for a radical change with this team, I think starting pitching this free agent market has a lot of depth. And if Jerry Reinsdorf's got the appetite and Chris Getz has got the selling skills, I think you can transform this starting rotation overnight. I'm more optimistic that the White Sox can fix the pitching issues that they have from this previous season, but the offense issues is still the bigger issue. But on the pitching side, I'm more optimistic, Dan, that Brian Bannister, along with Ethan Katz, can get this fixed. James, I want to ask you about Chris Getz. What if people around baseball, around the White Sox organization, told you about him? And what do you think of him as the choice to be the White Sox GM? Um, if you made me, uh, you know, in June, or just like, you know, back when you know, Han and, and Williams were there, if, if you made me choose from like White Sox current employees, which apparently was the process, who to lead the team, he's who I would pick. Like he, he's someone who has a lot of respect from, you know, scouts of other teams, uh, you know, has a lot of good relationships around the league. Um, you know, you know, some people who were trying to sell him on me said that, you know, maybe, you know, a lot of time the job of the executive is just to communicate things well to the owner in a way that convinces them, uh, you know, especially, you know, the owner that maybe is as more has an interventionist streak the way Jerry Reinsdorf is. So um, the, you know, the people around the baseball who were trying to talk him gets up to me like, touted that he might have the ability to do that and that can be beneficial um but as, as far as it i think uh, i i think i'm a bit more encouraged by him than say the minor league track record uh would would indicate but not a ton like you, you also had scouts who said that you know they, they didn't view the you know white Sox player development atmosphere or the, you know watching their minor league teams warm up they didn't seem as intensive or uh uh, you know, it seemed like an approach more um, geared towards trying to let their athletes be athletes and, and, and be loose and, and comfortable more than like it's very rigid or you see tons of really focused drills or you see tons of like intensive, you know, game speed uh, repetitions uh, before games. So it's not this elite player development engine that they're, you know, that he's been running the last seven years that you know now is being handed promotion. But uh, it, it's someone that people like that they think delegates well, that communicates well. Um, that would be the selling point to me. But at the same time, there's been the, the noticeable black eyes with you know uh, you know Helms and Vizquel. There's been you know not really the the um, progress or a lot of deep finds in, in the prospect system that's produced major leaguers in some way that's on par with you know some of the better player development organizations across the league. 
and you're coming off a season where, you know, even some rumbling from coaches is that, you know, they, they had a lot of guys coming up from the minors that weren't prepared and, uh, and weren't really ready for major league competition. Some of that is just the nature of, you know, how the level of organizational depth they have and, you know, the fact that they sold so much of the deadline, but um, it, it, it's just really a mixed bag. I, I think he's the best candidate um, from within the White Sox, but obviously it's not the way you you should have conducted this broad search uh, of a chance to really remake the organization. Jim, I don't know is what I'm trying to say. No, I think it's a, it's a fair answer. Jim, what do you think? I'll echo James in that, like, I've heard a lot of good things about Getz. Like, everybody who deals with him personally seems to like him, seems to not get a whole lot of runaround or misinformation, bad information. You know, they they think he's a fairly straight shooter. So there is that. Uh, I guess also if you're looking for, like, a positive spin on what the White Sox haven't been able to accomplish – I guess the Bannister hire would maybe signal that like maybe he knows something about like what the White Sox aren't doing or what what they haven't had, what he hasn't been able to provide himself or with the resources he has on hand, whether financially or whether just the resources of the talent that's around the organization. So if Bannister is, you know, what he usually is and and is engaged and you know wants to continue what is a pretty great track record and resume with the Red Sox and then the Giants, like to sell him on the White Sox job would suggest that maybe Getz does have something to his interpersonal relations to where like he might be able to close deals or make the White Sox a better place to work, a less closed off place to work that led to so many dead ends organizationally, like both the major league level and at the minor league level, just like a, a dearth of ideas. So I like that start. I'm encouraged by that start. I guess the one thing about Bannister that I saw in the athletic was that part of the reason he took the White Sox job was work-life balance. And he does consulting on the side. And I guess the White Sox were open to having a more flexible schedule, whether or not that's true, whether that's, you know, what uh, I think it was Andrew uh, Baggerly who wrote that, what the Giants people are telling him that to soften the blow. It didn't make it for an interesting, like, uh, uh, introduction when he was uh talking with the white Sox media and he didn't mention that but imagine you can't come into your job and say like yeah i took this job because i can work less so that's that's one thing in my back of my mind rattling around there in terms of like why he would take the white Sox job over continuing with the giants who have supported him pretty well and it seems like a pretty beneficial relationship but if banister can continue doing what he's doing i think that's a positive first step for gets in terms of bringing people who can do things that he and the White Sox haven't been able to do. Josh? With Chris Getz and the player development being so bad, I'm wondering if this is middle management syndrome here, in which that he's having to explain to Jerry Reinsdorf, listen, I would do more. However, Kenny and Rick didn't give me the resources. So this is where your Game of Thrones plot begins, mm -hmm. where you st you figure out a way to replace them. I know there's that. People think that there's some type of conspiracy theory or whatever on how Chris Getz finally got this job, but he was responsible for player development for the Chicago White Sox. So, so many of the issues that are in this PowerPoint deck or what we saw on the field that every White Sox fan and everyone else in Major League Baseball sees, that was Getz's responsibility. And if his message to everyone is, we're going to get this fixed, then what was the problem when you were the, the director? Was it not your problem because you didn't have the resources? Are you somewhat throwing Kenny Williams and Rick Khan under the bus here? More than somewhat. Uh, I'm trying to be nice. 
that's those are my follow-up questions here on how things are going to get better under you, Chris Getz. But with the hiring of Josh Barfield, and if Getz is like, listen, I'm handing this all off to Josh Barfield, then there's another line of optimism that I have within the Chicago White Sox because just look at the Arizona Diamondbacks. Josh Barfield was a big part of that rebuild for the Diamondbacks and identifying young players that are athletic. And right now they're up 2-0 on the Los Angeles Dodgers in the NLDS. So I would have more confidence that Josh Barfield could help out in the mid to long term for the Chicago White Sox to rebuild as far as their player player development pipeline. But yeah, I still have some questions for Chris Getz on exactly what is the issue here because Getz, your failings as a director of player development are impacting you, Chris Getz, as general manager in the short term to try to make this team competitive. Guys, this was special. This is really this is exactly what we envisioned. We certainly didn't envision that you would come in with printed material. <laughs> are, are you going to post the PowerPoint? You know what I'll do on SoxMachine.com? I'll, I'll put it on SoxMachine.com. I'll put it on social media. It's a little incomplete because I want to write up some about you know other creative ideas. Like if the Cubs can't bring back Cody Bellinger, how that could work out for the White Sox and some other guys I want to identify. But yeah, I'll put it out there so people could be really depressed uh, on how bad the middle infield is, but also part through all the starting pitching options in free agency and be like, oh, yeah, you can rebuild a starting rotation in the offseason. So some pessimism and uh, optimism coming your guys' way. Not a lot of optimism. Uh, (laughs) Thank you all for joining us. We really do appreciate it. We know you guys have much better things to do than talk about the White Sox. I don't. <laughs> that's, that's the sad thing. Thanks, this is what guys. we do. Yeah, see you guys. guys. That has been our White Sox panel <laughs> comprised of Jim Margulis, Josh Nelson in studio, and James Fegan.